KMTT. Kimitzion Tetzay Torah. And this is Ezra Bek. Today is Lamid Shvat. First day of Rosh Chodesh Adar. We're always unclear whether or not one should start singing Mishinichnas Adam Rav Mesimcha on Lamid Shvat or wait till Aleph Adar. I think we can wait till tomorrow. And therefore today's year will not be particularly happy. Merely, I hope, enjoyable. I will be giving the share. It is the weekly share on problems in medieval philosophy. Last week we discussed the second installment of the problem of evil. And in doing so, we began to raise the question of the purpose. The purpose in the way the world is run. One of the differences we pointed out already in the Shur on Hashkacha between the Rambam, and in that case, Rav Chastai Kreskas, was that the Rambam's attitude towards Hashkacha, as well as to the problem of evil, had to do with justice. In other words, it was God's reaction to what people did, whereas Rav Chastai Kreskas' attitude was proactive. It wasn't God's reaction to what people did, but God's actions were designed to lead the world, to lead people, to cause a certain effect in the world, which was God's purpose in the world. I just want to repeat something I pointed out two weeks ago, that that is not necessarily a criticism of the Rambam. By defining most of God's actions as reactive in the principle of justice, the Rambam pushes on man the most important responsibility for what's taking place. He makes man the one who makes the decisions as to how the world should look. This might, in fact, lead to a sorrow, a more sorrowful state of the world. I'm sure it does. But on the other hand, if you want to know then what's the purpose of all this, it means that man should take responsibility. It leaves room, leaves a tremendous amount of room for, for man's accomplishments, for man's accomplishments in finding God and becoming like God. Nonetheless, the question of God's purpose in the world does not arise according to the Rambam in that scheme. And in fact, what we're going to talk about today, the purpose of creation, the purpose of Hashkacha, the purpose of the Torah, is a question which the Rambam has a very, very special attitude, towards which the Rambam has a special attitude. I'd like to discuss two uh, approaches to purpose, to goal, in, uh, in medieval Jewish philosophy, that of the Rambam, and that of Rav Chastai Kreskas in Sefer Or Hashem. The Rambam, first of all, divides the question into two. He says, if you ask me what is the purpose of the world, I will tell you, impossible to answer. The Rambam has a simple, logical uh, approach. He says the purpose in God's creation can be one of two things. It can be either something for the world or something for God. Something for the world it can't be because the world didn't exist yet. And therefore the world cannot be the end to which God is acting. But for God it also can't be because God is perfect. And therefore there is no conceivable answer, no logical answer in our terms to explain why God created the world. The Rambam's formulation then becomes, you should say, Allah biritsono. It arose in God's will to create the world. There are contradictions in the Rambam about this question. We're not going to delve into the 
the, the, the intricacies and a very, very difficult question of what the Rambam exactly meant, because the Rambam expands at length on the absurdity of saying that God does things for no reason at all. So what the Rambam has to say is that there is a reason, but we can't figure it out. Okay, but that's, that's the first side of the Rambam's equation. Why did God create the world? That's not a question for which we have an answer or which we even should seek to give an answer. What is the purpose of the Torah? Or what is the end of man? That the Rambam thinks he has an answer. Notice I just asked two different questions and equated them. One question is, what is God's purpose in giving the Torah to man? Another question is, what is the end of man? In other words, what is the goal of human existence? That question, it's important to understand, is asked by the Rambam in a particular Greek philosophy context. Everything in existence has a, has a goal, has a final uh, destination. Things exist in order to fulfill something. The question, what is the goal of man, is equivalent to the question, what is the supreme form of man? What is the perfect man? The Rambam equates these two questions. The perfect form of man is the goal of the giving of the Torah to man. God commands the Torah because it will bring man to his fulfillment. And the Rambam's answer to that question, what is the fulfillment of man, and what is the purpose of the Torah, is, in two words, Yidiyat Hashem. The knowledge of God. The knowledge of God for the Rambam is a philosophic concept. It means philosophic knowledge of God. What can I know? The word know is a very particular, well-defined uh, 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 meaning in the Rambam's philosophy. Knowledge is that which can be proven to you through logic. The Middle Ages had a much more optimistic attitude towards the problem of human knowledge. It thought that men can know things. The Rambam is relatively a skeptic in the Middle Ages. He thinks man can only know some things. So Sajigun, for instance, thinks that man can know almost everything that can be known. If it's true, then reason can grasp it. The Rambam is much more skeptical and that's why he says there's much which is true, for instance, about God, which can never be known by the human mind. But nonetheless, the human mind can indeed know. And to know means to see something clearly, to see its truth clearly, to see that it's true and cannot not be true. In other words, to prove it logically. I imagine the example which, which the medievals had in mind was, was mathematics or geometry, the Euclidean system of geometry, which today is also not considered to be necessarily uh, logical and proven in and of itself. But in the Middle Ages it was. You simply laid down axioms which are obviously true and then build a system. So the Rambam thought you could lay down axioms which are obviously true in metaphysics and one of the principles which would then be proven was, for instance, the existence of God and that God is one and that God has no body. The three things which Rambam believes can be proven and known about, about God. Therefore, the Rambam begins the second section of the Moren of Uchim with a list of 25 axioms, similar to the 10 axioms that Euclid begins his geometry. The axioms aren't proven, but they're self-evident. So they're also true. Reason simply sees their truth. And the basis of those 25 axioms, one can, in a somewhat more complicated manner, prove uh, additional things, such as the existence of God, which is the subject of the first chapter of the second section of the Moreh Nebuchim. 
The Rambam at one point in the, in the Morena Vuchim says that if you believe that God exists, but you believe because you've been taught it by your parents, by your teachers, but you don't know or see the proof, then you don't know anything at all. Because knowledge is to know that it is true, not merely to believe it or to, or to hold it as a well-held opinion. And he says, to believe something because you've been taught it, not because you see that it's true, is to have no connection with reality outside your own mind. In other words, knowledge for the Rambam is a real connection between you and the thing you know. I'm not going to go into the theory. It's based on a particular Greek Aristotelian theory of knowledge, which isn't important because you, you can hold the, the, the theorem of the Rambam without agreeing to the particular kind of, of, of theory that the Rambam is, is using here, which was, which was basic philosophy in his time. But the idea is that if you know, for instance, some metaphysical truth, it's because your mind has grasped that truth the way one's eye sees that which is in front of one. In other words, when I see the wall that I'm looking at right now as I speak into this recorder, there's a relationship between me and the wall. The wall is creating an effect in my mind, in my sight, in a sense. And to know anything, including to know God, is to have a real relationship with the thing you know. Somewhat more extreme is that in Aristotelian philosophy, to know something is to have the same form as that thing. My mind has the form of that of which it thinks. And therefore to know God is to have one's mind have the shape, the form of God, because one knows God. And therefore the Ramam feels fully confident in saying that the knowledge of God is what in religious terms we would call dvekut. It's a kind of oneness. The Ramam explicitly says that. Knowledge of God is achdut hamaskil vahamuskal, the unity of the knower and the known. So even though when we read the Rambam, we tend to have this sort of attitude saying, well, this is just philosophic abstractness. For the Rambam, it was a real, real connection between the knower and the known. And the Rambam, in fact, believes that that's the basis for Olam Haba. If you know God, you have some sort of a unity with Him, that's why your mental processes, your mind, your soul, according to the Rambam, will also be eternal because it's achieved unity with the eternal, with the eternal truth, with the eternity of God. And the Rambam throughout the Monobuchim subsumes nearly everything under the uh, category of knowledge of God. This leads the Rambam to rather extreme statements concerning the relationship between the purpose of the Torah and the way Jews actually live. Because it would seem obvious that if the goal is knowledge of God, then not everybody, including not all those who observe all the mitzvot, in fact, not even most people who observe all the mitzvot, will in fact achieve the goal. More than that, there is no direct connection, no direct connection between the performance of mitzvot and the goal. And the Ramam's theory of mitzvot is that the mitzvot are all prerequisites, preliminaries, to the goal itself, but do not participate in the goal. By doing all these mitzvot, we form character, we, we cut ourselves off from distractions. These are all things which you have to do before, but the actual knowledge of God you do when you sit and philosophize. And you read the Rambam's proofs, and you, and you think about them, and you bring them into your, 
into your everyday existence. And all that takes place after one has performed the mitzvot and molded one's society and one's personality and one's life in such a way as to maximize the ability to know. But knowing and holding a lulav have in fact nothing in common. And therefore the Ramam has the rather extraordinary statement that the overwhelming majority of Shomrei HaTorah, not the overwhelming majority of mankind, but the overwhelming majority of Shomrei HaTorah do not in fact achieve the goal of the Torah. There's a bit of a paradox involved in this because since the Ramam believes that philosophy doesn't involve a, a special kind of intelligence, you're dealing with axioms and, and purely logical proofs, and therefore anyone with common sense should be able to follow the proof. However, it requires it requires inner discipline, it requires not being distracted, it requires some amount of effort, and therefore you have the amazing paradox that while anybody, anyone who was intelligent, means anyone created B'Tselem Elohim, created with, with, with human intelligence, can achieve the goal, but we know that very few in fact will. And the famous... Uh, Mashal of the Rambam he describes a great palace of the king which is surrounded by a huge courtyard which is surrounded by a great wall in which there is one gate and most people including those who observe mitzvot are wandering around outside the wall and have not yet found the gate and of those who have found the gate only a minority get inside the courtyard. But those who found the courtyard, only a minority find the entrance to the palace. And of those who found the palace, only a minority find the room in which the king sits. And of those, only a minority get to actually approach the throne and see and behold the king. Because the goal of life is intellectual, intellectual unity with God, but intellectual none nonetheless. Criticisms against the Rambam offered in medieval philosophy by in an earlier period the Ramban, and later on by the by the Rambam's by the Rambam's critics, most prominently Rav Chasdei Kreskas and Sefer Or Hashem, are varied. There are philosophic objections. The whole philosophic Greek philosophic basis on which the Rambam argues is attacked by Rav Chasdei Kreskas. Is it in fact true that one's mind? One's rationality takes the shape of that which one knows, which is a, an essential, crucial point for the Rambam, in order to claim that knowledge changes you, makes you one with that which you know. He, he attacks that. Okay, we're not going to go into that. It's a fine point of a very, very, very medieval philosophy. It, it's, it's almost impossible to grasp today. We've changed so many of our assumptions. But Avchasti also has a number of, of, of particularly Jewish and mitzvot, kind of arguments. This first argument that I mentioned has nothing to do with Judaism. It's about the idea that the fulfillment of mankind, that man's perfection is knowledge. Rav Chasta attacks that. Perfection of man is not knowledge, nor is the mental processes, the mind, equivalent with the soul. But there are also attacks on the Kabbalist statement of the Rambam, that the goal of the Torah is to foster knowledge of God. For instance, Rav Chasta asks the question which I hinted at before. That means that the goal of mitzvot is not itself a mitzvah, is not part of mitzvot. Or in the words of Rav Chasta, 
Chazal say that kol ha'osem mitzvah achat mitivin lo. If you do one mitzvah, that's already good. And according to Rambam, it's not true. If you do one mitzvah, or even 613 mitzvot, it's not good yet. In other words, we haven't achieved anything. Only if you utilize those mitzvot to then do something further, will you have good, meaning, well, I think what they thought it meant was, will you get to Olam Abba? Or, kol Yisrael yesh lamachedek l'olam Abba. Or another statement of Chazal, that when does one merit the, the world to come? It says from the age of six, seven, eight. Which Kuntavam is ridiculous because a six, seven, eight-year-old doesn't have philosophic knowledge. Can't have philosophic knowledge. His mind is not well, is not well enough developed. And Rav Chastai's alternative to the Rambam is a very simple one. He changes only one word. The goal of existence and the goal of human life and the goal of the Torah is not Yidi'at Hashem, but Ahavat Hashem. Not knowledge of God, but the love of God. Rav Chastai says this answer is not really the question of what is the perfection of man, and what is the goal of the Torah, but also what is the purpose of the world. The world was created so that it would be, it would participate in the love of God. Where Rav Chastai understands the love of God to be itself devekut, to be itself union, in a sort of medieval version of what we would consider to be a romantic definition of love. The love of God, if man loves God, he is davek, not necessarily one, he doesn't use the word achdut, that might be too strong a word to use, but there's a cleaving, there's a unity, there's a, a togetherness that's created by love between two persons, and man can love God, and if Chastai in fact develops and, and, and uh, uh, develops at length the idea that God loves man. An idea which is almost impossible to say in Maimonidean terms. What does it mean to love God according to Avchastai? So Avchastai approaches this on two levels. First of all, on the anthropological level. If the Rambam defined the soul, the inner part of man, as being basically mind, Avchastai defines the inner part of man as being soul. And soul's primary 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 quality is the ability to love. What does it mean to love? Love in Rav Chastai is the idea of service. To love someone is to want to serve them, to do things for them. And therefore we see immediately the connection between mitzvot and love. Any mitzvah, irrespective of its individual reason. And Rav Chastai has a, a section, not as long as the Rambam, Rambam has 14 chapters on Tamea Mitzvah, the reasons for Mitzvah. Rav Chastai has one very long chapter. But, and, and he'll give reasons for every single Mitzvah, why God commanded that. And every Mitzvah has to contribute in some way to the love of God, just as every Mitzvah according to the Rambam has to contribute in some way to the ability to know God. But aside from the individual Mitzvah, any Mitzvah participates in the love of God because a Mitzvah you do because you wish to serve God. And serving God is itself love. And if we saw a week ago, in the Chassai's discussion of the problem of evil, that actions create character, then actions of serving God, doing His will, doing what He wants, are constantly inculcating love of God, because by doing something for someone else, you in fact love them. That's why Chassai says that God loves the world, because we see that God does things for the world. He created it. He, he brings the rain. He feeds everything in it. et so God is a constant flow of love, meaning service, meaning doing things for the world. And the reason that one can say that about God 
the way we answer the Rambam's question, why would God want to do something for someone else when the thing doesn't exist and God gets nothing out of it, is a very, very famous expression later on popularized by the Ramchal, by Lutzato. Teva Hatov Lehetiv. God is pure goodness, and goodness is doing good. And since God is good, His goodness is expressed by His doing things for others, including their creation. So the question, well, what does God get out of it? The answer is, He doesn't become more perfect because there's also a world. He's not doing it because He wants to help the world, which doesn't yet exist, but He's expressing it. It arises out of the infinite goodness of God, which is an infinite desire to do for others, including their creation and later on their sustenance, and ultimately they're bringing them, these other things, these other people, these other persons, closer to God, because the greatest good of any created thing is to be close, to have a relationship with God, the relationship which we call Ahavat Hashem. So here there's this, there's this circle that's closed. God is good, therefore God does good, Hatov Metiv, and by doing good, he creates things, and the best thing he can do for them is to have them love him. Because by loving him, they, in fact, achieve a unity with him, they achieve eternal life, and they fulfill themselves in the greatest sense possible for any created thing. How does God go about, after creating the world, how does he go about doing good for the world? Well, one thing he does is he gives the Torah, to Am Yisrael, which is the means of perfecting human existence. Every single mitzvah has an individual contribution to the love of God, as well as a general contribution to the love of God of that individual who is doing those mitzvot. And by giving these mitzvot to the Jewish people, God is molding the Jewish people into a nation that loves Him and achieves its own fulfillment and ultimately olam, olam haba. Although the phrase Havat Hashem is parallel to the phrase Yidiyat Hashem in the Rambam, there is in fact a very important difference. Yidiyat Hashem, as I pointed out, is a distinct goal different from everything else we do in our lives. You do all kinds of mitzvot and then you also have to make sure that you've utilized the benefits of the individual mitzvot in order to basically to philosophize. For Chastai, one doesn't need this, this mental action of saying, okay, now I'm going to X, have some sort of relationship with God. The relationship is called Ava, but you don't say, okay, now I'm going to love God. You don't have to make a special effort to love God. On the contrary, what you have to do is do things, which is what the Torah is all about. And by doing those things, you automatically are engaged in the actions of love of God. And this, of course, is something which many, many people have pointed out is very, very basic to the Torah as opposed to other forms of religious activity. The Torah is a life of action and not a life of belief and not a life of emotions and not a life of, of, of saying how one should have an inner relationship with God, but tells you what to do. And if Chastai is literally uh, 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 focused in on that, on that point, the Torah is about a life of action 
But nonetheless, if Chastai Shuz or anybody else, that the ultimate goal, of course, is an inner relationship with God. It's Olam Haba, where there won't be any actions. But he explains that actions are personality. And therefore, the Torah commands actions, because actions are personality. What does every action have? They have many, many different traits in Midot. Actions involving courage create courage. Actions of generosity create generosity. But all actions that are done for God's sake, because you're in Mitzuvah because you've been commanded, create the love, the service, the connection to God, which is essential for any human being's ultimate fulfillment and, 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 full, and full existence. Rebchaste comments on famous Ma'amar in Pekei Avot, which is contradictory, obviously on purpose. The Chazal say in Pekei Avot, Yafeh, Sha'a Achat, Shal Torah Umasim Tovim, Bolam Hazem, Yikor Chayei Olam Haba. One hour of actions, of mitzvot, and learning Torah in this world is better than all the life in the world to come. One hour of korat ruach, of satisfaction, of, of, the, of the feeling that one has in the world to come, is worth more than all of the life of this world. So what's better, this world or next world? So if Chastai explains that there's a difference here between God's perspective and man's perspective. Love has an inner paradox. To love God is the best thing that can happen to you. But one who loves God is not thinking about himself, and his actions are not directed towards himself. They're directed, by definition, towards God. If one engages in activities which one calls love in order to benefit, it's not love at all. It's love of oneself, not love of the other. I think that's probably true in, I'm sure it's true, in interpersonal, human interpersonal relations as well. I think today probably many people search for love because they want to have love, not because they want to love someone else. And that might indeed be one of the factors why they don't succeed. Love is by definition selfless and, and, and not selfish. So Rav Chastai says, he who loves God wishes not to be Bolam He wants to be Bolam On the assumption, which is shared by most thinkers, which we won't discuss, that in Olam there is no more service, nothing more to do. So Olam Haba is the place one achieves the reward, so to speak. One is able to then luxuriate in the existence of the love, in the Dvekut, in the oneness, in the cleavage with God. You are, so to speak, embraced with God in Olam Haba. In Olam you may not feel, you won't feel, in fact, that closest to God because you're busy running around the world doing things that He's asked you to do. I imagine, although the book was written after Avchaz Kreskas, that the the idea of nightly service that's partially, it, it's parodied in, in Cervantes, in Don Quixote, is, is what really Chasta is talking about. The knight loves, in, in the case of Don Quixote, he loves his lady. Or one loves God by running around the world. You don't even see God. You don't see the lady. <laughs> in Cervantes' case, she didn't exist. But you serve her by doing things in her name and for her. So the tzaddik wants to stay in this world where he can serve God. He doesn't want to go to the next world because what's he going to do there? He wants to serve. That's what his love demands of him. God wants you to love him so that you can have the love, so you can feel the love, so you can feel the closest to God. So God wants you in Olam Haba. But man wants to be in Olam Hazeh. 
אז יפה שעה אחת של מעשים טובים בעולם הזה מכוח העולם הבא. From the point of view of man, of the tzaddik, one hour of actually doing things is worth more than all of the, all the next world. No man should wish to die. He who serves God does not wish to die. He wishes to live and do more. However, the state, not the activity of love, but the state of love, of being in love, we would say today, in Olam Haba, where one is not bothered by extraneous circumstances. There is no divider between one and God. So that one is in fact luxuriating in the embrace of God as of satisfaction, of the feeling of the Spirit. The pleasantness of the spirit, Baulam Abba, Mikol Chaye Haolam Hazeh. We will continue this discussion, this dichotomy, in this case between the knowledge of God and the love of God. There are other versions of Rav Chastak. If one goes back 150 years to the Ramban, who was a very different thinker than Rav Chastak, I think the roots of what Rav Chastak is saying is found in the Ramban. He doesn't speak about Avat Hashem, but he speaks about the Bekut of the soul. He speaks about a unity of the soul that's not based on, on thinking per se, only on thinking. By the way, Rav is not an anti-rationalist. He says the soul thinks, but that's not what defines it. So we can find a number of other thinkers, starting with the Ramban, who will say things that are similar to Rav Chastai, at least in contradiction to the Ramban. It's not, a, it's not intellectual knowledge of God, but being one with God in a mystic manner perhaps, in the Kabbalah, in the Ramban, and in an emotional manner, according to Rav Chastai. The difference between that and thinking, we will continue to explore in other areas in the next couple of weeks, starting next week with an idea which might not be the most obvious step forward, but I think for the, this period of time, these Rishonim in fact was, and that's one of the topics we're going to discuss, why it was, and that is the topic of prophecy, of Nevu'ah, and there's a philosophy of Nevoah in the Middle Ages, something which later Jewish thinkers stopped thinking about to a great extent in the last three, four hundred years. But in the Middle Ages, this was a major topic. We will examine it in light of the distinction we made today between knowing God and loving God. You have been listening to the Shia in Problems in Medieval Philosophy, Issues and Problems in Medieval Philosophy. And now we turn to the Halacha Yomit. And now for today's Halacha Yomit, continuing from yesterday, a closely related prohibition to yesterday's prohibition. Yesterday we spoke about the Isur to do Melacha, to take care of your one's matters or to go on a trip. And the Shulchan Aruch continues in the very, very same sif, same sentence even, he continues to a different Isur. One cannot take care of one's own matters or go on a trip before davening, nor to eat or to drink. But the Mechaba Paskins, it's permissible to drink water before davening. Also, if it's for if it's medicine. Although the Mechaber brings this together in one halacha, and probably, I think that indicates they thought there's a similar idea, but the, the, the basis in the Gemara is a totally different Gemara altogether. The Gemara in Berchot, on Daf Yud, says that there is a Isur to, uh, to eat 
or drink before davening because of a pasuk in the Torah. Lo tochlu al hadam. It's a difficult pasuk, and in different places the Gemara gives different explanations. This explanation is lo tochlu al hadam, lo tochlu kodem shitpalalu al dimchem. You should not eat on blood. As I'll say, you should not eat before you have prayed for your blood. In other words, prayed for your life. Eating on blood means eating before taking care of the more important basis for life. Food is a minor point in living. Davening is more is more important. The Gemara then mentions a, a different pasuk, a pasuk in uh, in 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 in, in Melachim. God complains you have thrown me over your back and they, the drasha says over your pride. It's an act of pride to first stuff yourself and then and then to pray. The second pasuk sounds closer to yesterday's idea. Taking care of yourself before you take care of the first idea it's taking care of yourself in both ways. It just indicates a total lack of understanding of what it means to take care of oneself. Taking care of one's gastronomical needs before one takes care of one's basic life. One's blood is in God's hands. First pray and ask for God's uh, assistance. Ask God for life. And afterwards, do that little extra bit of, of feeding of feeding yourself. Despite the fact that the Gemara quotes the Pasuk in the Torah, Pasuk is in Vayikra, in, in Pashat Kedoshim, Lotochul al-Adam, Nearly all we shown him say that it's only the Rabbanan. The Rabbanan in the Sefer Mitzvot says that it's in fact a derivative. That's it's the explanation of the pasuk. But even the Rambam in the in the Yada Chazaka doesn't doesn't mention this again. And it would appear that he thinks it's the Rabbanan. And almost all other we shown him, the uh, Meiri and the Ritva and uh, Rabbeinu Yona and the Rush, they all say that the Isur is only only the Rabbanan. Why does the Mechaba say you can drink water? This is based on the end of the Gemara. The Gemara said that the second Pasuk was, You have put me after your own pride. So the Ravya says this only applies to eating and drinking, which is a matter of pride. But something as basic as water doesn't have any... It's not, you, you drink it only because you're thirsty, not because, not because there's any other value. Uh, he says that doesn't count. And based on that Ravya, the Machaba Paskins, that it's permissible to drink to drink water. That leads to the famous Machloket, well, what does it mean water? Uh, it begins with tea and coffee. Coffee was the original Shaila. And then continues whether you're allowed to add sugar in your to your coffee. The uh, the Radvaz, who says that we can drink coffee, he's talking about himself. We drink coffee rather than water. He meant that's just a basic drink. No one drinks water. You drink uh, you drink coffee, but he says you're not allowed to put any sugar in it because sugar is a very geyecha. It's a it's a food with a flavor. And this, in fact, is quoted lalacha many many years later. It's 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 the psaka the chayyadam and the psaka the mishnah bura. However, there are many many poskim who say that if people don't drink coffee without sugar, they, they find it almost impossible. It's just, it's just not drunk anymore because it's too bitter. So adding a little bit of sugar to make it drinkable still leaves it basically as being basic drink and not a food or a drink with the kind of symbolism that, that would indicate pride, that would indicate um, an activity which undermines the priority of addressing God first thing, first thing in the morning. 
So, Allah uh, Maisa, although again, the, the post can basically still debate it, but I think Allah Maisa, most post can permit it. However, you won't find in written poskim permissibility to drink other other beverages. Uh, Alpidin, coffee and tea are considered to be basically water for in a number of different halachic areas. Adding a little sugar just makes it drinkable. Uh, more complicated drinks, surely not alcoholic drinks, which is the Rav who's the father of this entire uh, direction in halacha, said specifically not alcoholic drinks, but also other important drinks, drinks that have real substance to them, uh, the poskim not, do not uh, permit, and surely they do not permit eating. The Rav spoke of water because water doesn't have doesn't really have any, the the aspect of being food, but but real food, eating food, there's no written posek who will who will permit. I know people do eat before davening, especially on Shabbat when davening is long and they're hungry. Some posek would say if you're weak, if you don't think you can make it through it, but you have to really be serious about this. If it's really very difficult, I'm not talking about someone who's actually sick, someone who's sick. The doctor says he has to eat. So that's Bikoch Nefesh. But uh, you might be able to, some person would say, a person who is very weak and needs to eat, or else he'll, he'll just not be able to daven. So maybe he could eat a little bit. I'm not sure you'll find that written in Poskim either, but Halach said that might be true. But for a healthy person, it's very difficult to find a heta to eat before davening. And although, as I said, the Isa might be the Rabbanan, but the language the Gemara uses, it may be the Rabbanan, but it indicates something that's really terrible. al Adam, you're, you're undermining the basis of your life. And you've thrown me over your backs, over your pride. Put me aside to take care of yourselves. It indicates a basic moral failing to get up in the morning, eat, and only afterwards go afterwards go to go to David. For, for children, the post can say that they, they should eat before they daven, until they get to, basically, to 12 or 13. And, but it might be a good idea if they have them say brachot first. Again, similar to the idea we said yesterday, that maybe you don't need shalom esrei. Just somehow approaching God is already, at least to some extent, addressing the issue involved in this, in this mitzvah. So even someone who does have to eat should, or a child, or, or let's say a, a person who's sick, does have to eat, it would be best if he said at least some of the brachot first, so that he's not totally ignoring God before he takes care of himself. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with a share in the weekly mitzvah by Harav Benjamin Tabori. Until then, this has been Ezra Bek, and this has been KMTT, your Torah podcast, Ki Mitzion Torah, Udvar Hashem Mirushalayim.